There must be dead bodies laying everywhere outside that department. They haven't urinated, we give them like a beer or something. The nurse or the, the, the security guard or somebody else already dragged you in and said, hey, I saw this kid you know, walk in the door and they don't look right. The place was melting down. You just got the, a hemophiliac bus accident. Hello, welcome. Rick Bucata. Greg Henry. And our guest, Al, Al Sacchetti. That's right. We're here at the uh, Scientific Assembly 2012 in Denver. And uh, Al just won about 15 minutes ago the Speaker of the Year Award, Al, which is uh, an extraordinary achievement. And uh, congratulations, buddy. The, the, the interesting thing is I'm sitting in front of two previous winners of the <laughs> award. In fact, Greg was the an initial winner of it. So, uh, yes. Yeah, Demosthenes I, gave me the award that year, that, so that's how far back this thing goes. That is true, and so I, I'm just following my mentor's footsteps. So. Yes, very good. Well, listen, now that we have uh, Al with us today, he's a very bright guy generally in emergency medicine. I want him to jump in and talk about all the various cases we've got. You know, his area of expertise is certainly uh, pediatric, but uh, Al, you're still seeing everything, aren't you, in the department? I I am a throwback. I work in a a busy general emergency department. Uh, We see about 25% pediatrics, but we don't have a pediatric ED. We are, all our docs are general (gasps) emergency physicians, and we treat anything that walks through the door. You don't have a pediatric ED. Those children are at such fantastic risk. There must be dead bodies laying everywhere outside that department. We have a very efficient housekeeping staff. Yeah, they they clean up. I think that's a great thing. Okay. Well, well listen, know, we, let's... We, we, before we get on, we have had, in the abstracts, all of these papers comparing regular emergency physicians with pediatric emergency physicians, and the, you always get the intent is to show that the regular emergency physicians aren't up to speed, and virtually every one of those articles just says, no, that's just not the opposite. That's just the opposite. These guys are doing just fine. Uh, thank you very much. Although there are a couple of areas of growing <coughs> controversy that I'd really be interested in your approach towards. Um, we, can, we can, well, let me get it right off the chest here. Uh, where do you stand on this pediatric infection in the urine business? Well, it, it's actually kind of interesting. I, I, I do believe that, that, there, that there are in, infections in the urine. I, I think it's it probably one of those things that over time, a lot of what we used to call virus was just a, a self-limited pediatric urinary tract infection. Um, you, you culture the urine, you grow out the bacteria. It, it's, um, it's clearly there. The one thing that no one's ever proven, though, is is asymptomatic bacteria just a common thing in children? It's certainly a common thing in adults. We see it in, in nursing home patients all the time. Uh, the question is, no one's ever done that study that says, if we take a bunch of kids that are going in for tympanostomy tubes, and while they're under, straight catheter and see how many of them have some bacteria in their urine, that'll answer the question. But the bottom line is, you've got a kid with a fever, you get some urine, it's got some white cells in it, it's got some bacteria in it. You, you know, it's, it looks like a duck, walks like a duck like a duck, it's probably worthwhile treating them. But I don't think anybody's ever proven that one way or the other. And what about this uh, business about uh, how do you get urine? Uh, it, I, we have, I, I, I'll let you know in a secret. We, we've got a study going on now. A secret? A secret, yes. It's a secret. So don't, don't anybody uh, publish this before we do. Um, one of the things is, is, you know, you can catheterize kids. I mean, if you want to know if a kid's got um, bacteria growing in their urine, you have to, you have to catheterize them and, and culture the stuff out. 
But one of the things is, I just want to know if you've got some white blood cells in there. So what we've been doing is we, we take these uh, kids and we'll take and just take a bunch of cotton balls and stick it in the diaper and just feed the kid, you know, whatever uh, they want to drink the most of. If they haven't urinated, we give them like a beer or something. Uh, and then, you know, we get the urine out of them, take the cotton balls, stick them in, the, in a syringe, put the plunger in, squeeze the urine out and send it off to the lab. Uh, the only thing we haven't, uh, and the, the purpose of the study, it works very effectively to collect the urine. The purpose of the study we're doing right now is to see, do the cotton balls absorb the white cells? So are we like filtering out the white cells using this technique? So uh, in about six months, we'll have the answer to that. But that's, that's the easiest way to do it. I mean, I, you know, your garden variety kid with a fever for two days, I am not pinning that kid down and, and you know, straight catheter him. I think that's I, absolutely I, ridiculous. I, that was just the answer I was hoping yeah. for. Because there's so many people who think the only way to get urine is to um, puncture their bladder or uh, cast them. And they make the uh, case that, well, if it comes back an abnormal urinalysis, you're going to have to cast them anyway. Well, the fact is that statistically it's not going to come back as an right. abnormal urinalysis. And the other thing I think that was important that you pointed out is that urinary tract infections require some evidence of inflammation. They need to have some white cells. You just can't have bacteria. You've got to have a, a, a positive uh, leuk leuk um, um, leukocyte esterase or something like that to help suggest that this is not just asymptomatic bacteria because otherwise this viral illness will be diagnosed as a UTI. And they, they said, I, I told you you should have gone for that urine. And there you, there you go. Yeah, I know no, you I, didn't intuit yeah. it. Absolutely not. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest with you, my threshold's about five days. You've got to have a fever for about five days before we'll even think about it. There is one exception is, is you know, the, the kid who's, who's got a fever and some, just some vomiting for no reason. You know, they don't have any other associated GI symptoms. I'll take a closer look at their urine. But otherwise, I agree 100%. This concept, it's funny, I talk to the, the nurses and they go, our pediatricians will not see a child until they have a fever for five days. They, they absolutely just say, you know, where's the, uh, where's the data on that? It's, well, the, the, tr the data is that there's no diagnostic, as long as the child looks well, but there's data is that there's no diagnostic um, study you can do on a child under um, 24 hours of, of duration of a fever that's of any value at all. And most of the, the studies, the CBCs, the, um, you know, the CRPs and all those are absolutely useless. So these guys figure just wait five days, kids still got a fever, I'll take a look at your urine. Yeah, the caveat, however, you put in there, um, Al, is as long as the kid looks good. Yes. This is the caveat, because in my 38-year career of doing this, I kind of knew sick kids in about five seconds. Yes. You walk in and said, you're not right. And it doesn't matter what the test is at that moment in time. You're not right. You need to be worked up. And there's another group that running around eating the popsicles, happy kids, that, you know what, you don't know why they're there, because yeah. no matter what you got out of them, you were going to do nothing for them, really. It, it, I, think, I think this is a, still goes back to careful physical examination by people who know their business. And you're right. For, to, to have two days of a minimal temperature and, and have mom in there, um, the political problem is selling the fact that you're testing nothing, doing nothing at that moment in time. And I, and I just waited an hour for you to do nothing. Yeah, yes, I just wait, well, an hour. That would be a short wait in a lot of places. But right? I, and I think that the other point you bring up is most of the time you don't get a chance to walk in the room and say this kid looks bad. The nurse or the, the, the security guard or somebody else already dragged you in and said, hey, I saw this kid you know, walk in the door and they don't look right and they brought, your, brought him right to your attention. Yeah, or worse than that, didn't walk in, was carried yeah. in. Yeah, that's, exactly. always, that's always a problem. Well, I guess what I was driving at is um, we've gone through two evolutions. One was the Larry Baroff evolution where febrile kids uh, over 100, was it 103, 
102. Yeah, 102.2. Uh, well, source unknown, basically, where we wound up, you know, they get the uh, CBC. If it were 15,000, you get the uh, blood cultures and they give the shot of ceftriaxone. And when we look back on that, that was a that was a big, 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 big mistake, I think. Oh, most, yeah. You know, most of that uh, bacteria, uh, bacteremia cleared on its own. But now we've gone, that's, we, we threw that away. And, and we now, haven't, though. There's, a, there's people who still adhere to that. There's people who still believe you, you need to screen with a, a CBC, which is just ludicrous. And, and you know, the, the, the whole concept of there's a diagnostic test you can do to tell me whether this child is sick is, like Greg just alluded to, worthless. Gentlemen, 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 this isn't um, uh, uh, MRAP or anything like that. We're talking about the medical legal aspects of what we're doing. Well, we, the, the idea is, here is in yeah. children is we don't want to send out kids who have serious febrile illnesses. And so now we're looking all over the place because I think fe- uh, fevers still make parents uh, a little nervous and jerky. And it still makes doctors a little nervous and jerky, especially when... They just have to say, well, maybe it's a virus. You it's a no fever idea. phobia that yeah. is spread across the country. And actually, I, in my career, has been kids who had uh, normal temperatures or less than normal temperatures. If you're a six-month-old with a low temperature, you're much, much greater risk of having a bad disease as far as I'm concerned. I, I have to do the talk tomorrow on um, you know, fever and children uh, here at the Scientific Assembly. And you know, the first slide is the introductory slide, you know, how to manage childhood fever. The second slide is, says, very simply, it's a virus, go home. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. You know, 2012 fever management. Yeah. But the problem is, <clears throat> from a risk management standpoint, this is one of those very few, very high payout things. If you do miss a serious bacterial infection, whether it's meningitis or sepsis or whatnot, the risk management implications are overwhelming. And so everybody is terrified of missing that needle in a haystack. And that's why they over-respond with, doing diagnostic tests that aren't indicated and looking, you know, looking to try and find, uh, you know, is a C-reactive protein better than a procalcitonin, better than a CBC? I'll tell you, the, the, the one thing, and I think from a risk management standpoint, most important thing is when I see a child who I've looked over head to toe and I really don't see anything going on with them, and I think they're a virus, I, tell, I bring that kid back to see me the next day. And uh, 90% don't come back because they're well. Correct. Okay. We I give the option that. to call me. We, we did that at our own place. Yeah. Or, or, we or they could be in the morgue. Well, they could be, Rick. We usually hear about them. Yeah. 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 And, and the bottom line is at some point in time, we can't test everybody for everything. And when you do test everybody for everything, the false negative and false positives now have to all factor into this sort of thing. Uh, you know, still taking a look isn't that a bad idea? I got to get off this topic because you want to do some risk management. Or I, I'm sorry about this, this risk but management. I'm sitting here in front of Al Sacchetti, who knows everything there is in the whole world about kids, and I I can't ke- keep up with this. I can't compete. So I want to talk about malpractice insurance or something where I can at least compete with him about this. We have a letter from one of our readers, uh, Matt Vreeland. Hi, Matt. A shout out to you. And the uh, bottom line is he writes to us, I do have a quick question. Our Democratic group, however you define that, 24 providers, three hospitals, about 100,000 visits, is looking to change our malpractice limits. Can you point me to some reference or a risk management monthly discussion which addresses how one decides how much insurance coverage to purchase? Uh, and then he, he references a note uh, from, his, uh, from the group CEO. Well, Matt, let me just tell you, <clears throat> that you're not in, conchar- in charge of this boat. 
if you have a contract with the hospital, the hospital will dictate in the contract what the limits of insurance have to be. And in at least 24 of our states, the state law will dictate what the insurance levels have to be. If you're in the state of Virginia, for example, you have to carry $1.75 million in coverage per patient. You don't get a choice. The state has said that. Nobody can buy insurance for less than that. If you're in the state of Michigan, maybe it's uh, two hundred or four hundred thousand from the from the state. But the hospital group itself, or the hospital organization itself, will dictate how much money you have. So this discussion is very much group dependent with the hospital. And I'll tell you this right now: if you have that money, uh, the next question is with the hospital: Do you cross claim? Will you go after us in, in crossed indemnity for money? You want to know that. And has anybody in this hospital ever lost money when sued in conjunction with the hospital? The hospital is, for most emergency physicians, the, the uh, excess coverage. The hospital picks up, you know, above what you lose. But that's not the case anymore, and we have to be very, very careful. I was the expert on a case in Michigan where a hospital settled out and the doc was uh, uh, forced into bankruptcy. So this is a, uh, this is a very much state-dependent question. Any comments, gentlemen? Well, you know, the medical staff of the hospital, in conjunction with uh, the uh, CEOs and those guys, established a floor. And uh, at our hospital, it was one, one, in, one million, three million. But then the um, the the uh, hospital administration, forty two some hospitals basically said, for the ER docs we want four, uh, two million, four million, the one million, three million could, for the general staff could stay, but we're going to up it for you guys. Yep. And you've talked about this before, and um, we have had rather extensive discussions on this that. Raising the amount that you are insured by just cr- creates a bigger target for them to go after because generally, generally, they're not going to go over your limits. So if you have a $4 million limit, they'll go for that. If you have $3 million, they'll go for that. And so it's not really clear that um, you're protecting yourself <coughs> by buying more. I mean, it sounds like you are, yeah. but it's not clear that you are. Yeah, and, you're and, not necessarily. And if there's ever been a topic here on Risk Management Monthly where you actually have to sit down with an attorney who understands healthcare law and insurance law, this is the topic. Because a simple word inserted, also named insured, for example, is a phrase which you need to understand what that means. What does it mean? Well, this is what it means. If, you're, if there's an also named insured, are we talking about, does your insurance also cover the hospital? Uh, does the hospital get out on this deal? Yes, the hospital wants to be indemnified. Ho- well, that's a cross-indemnity question, and almost all of our contracts, although you try and get rid of it, says, if the facts say that the hospital employees are at fault, we'll cover any of your losses, ER doc. But the other thing is, if it's the emergency doc alone and the hospital gets tagged, you have to personally reimburse us. That's the killer. That is is the killer and if you just got to know how those clauses are being run in your organization in the old days hospitals were a little slow to to sue their own doctors for contribution after a case that's all gone 
They, they'll, they'll take your wallet. They'll take your firstborn children. They'll take anything you've got at this point in time. And quite frankly, they don't care. What, what is common <clears throat> is hospitals will have two sets of limits, one for the general medical staff and another set of limits for the rapes radiology, anesthesia, pathology, and emergency medicine because they are contracted, vended services and they have a different relationship to the hospital. Uh, and, you're, and you're talking about independent contractor status, uh, and not employee status. Oh, no, absolutely right. not. If, right. it's, if you're, you're an employee, employee of the hospital, you're in shape. You, well, you, you're in Go different to shape. It. Go to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just malpractice on right. whoever you want. You do whatever but, you want. But the bottom line is... Uh, uh, if you're an employee, it's a just totally different world than if you have an independent contract. They have nothing to do with each other. And uh, so, sorry, we'd like to give you a simple answer here, Matt, but it does depend on the state, the the employment relationship, and uh, what you're able to negotiate with the hospital. Now, I've got a question for you because I know physicians, um, not, not particularly emergency physicians, but I know physicians and I know nurses who have taken out um, – personal policies over and above what their other policies are. And I always looked at that and said, that's not protecting you with anything. That just means that's more money they're going to go after if it's there. And the other thing I usually find is when a case exceeds that <coughs> 1 million, 2 million or whatever it is, it's, it's not just, oh, they went up to 4 million, I'd be protected. It's usually they went up to 12 million or 15 million. When that exceeds it, it goes way over it. So yeah. I, I don't know that you know adding a little bit more helps... Well, I, I can never understand why a nurse who is employed by a health care center would carry their own insurance. It makes no sense. But they do. Well, I understand that they do. And you know what? You and I ought to go in the business of selling them insurance because they are the direct agent and servant of the hospital. Uh, this is, the, this is the, the master answering. And, and the, the master does have to answer first. If you work for Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit... What are the chances a case is going to exceed the the finances of Henry Ford Hospital? I just have no idea why they do why an employee would ever do that. And I don't know of one nurse in any case in the United States since I've started to follow this who has ever been successfully sued for her own money. I've never seen it. Readers, listeners, uh, if you know of that case, send it in. Because we read the, the, the journals all the time, and I've never seen the case. Do you, are you gentlemen aware of it? No, but I think that that gives them a, a false sense of security when they do that. I think people are advocating. If you look into the nursing journals, there's uh, advertisements for that, that kind of insurance uh, as well. So it's kind of like uh, you never can be too insured kind of thing. And, and I don't think it's very expensive. So it's kind of, you know, not necessarily useful but it doesn't you're not suggesting that a profit-making company would ever overstate the value of its product are you no i'm not oh my god so actually i was with um a fellow last night who bought a product that i thought uh, brought it to the uh, dining room table there uh leon gussell yes the toxicology fellow we were having dinner with uh tim erickson and my brother and he brought over a canister an, an aerosol canister and it was oxygen. It was a little canister of oxygen that you squirt and you, uh, look at. Uh, no, no. Oh, it's my oxygen. No. <laughs> this is a little canister, and it says 90% oxygen. And he squirts it in his mouth like a, uh, a meter dose inhaler. 
and that you would think that a company selling 90% oxygen, it's like, it is a total sham that they would sell they, something like that. They have that, whole you bars. They have oxygen bars. I yes. know. Well, yeah, you see that in the mall. You right. see these colorful waters and stuff bubbling up through it, and people are getting their oxygen Rick, fixed. they had an oxygen bar last night at the opening reception here at, at the American College of Emergency Physicians Scientific Assembly, and they have an oxygen bar. I, w- I was going to take them out and slap them. I mean, I, they said, well, but you're in Denver. You know, that was a Barack Obama's excuse or, or, or somebody's excuse about the debates. The bottom line is, no, sitting at an oxygen bar for, for 20 minutes doesn't change anything. By the way, you equilibrate when you've walked away from that machine in about two minutes. What are we doing? So I guess what the point was, people are allowed to sell stuff that you don't need. Yeah, well, people th- throughout history, I'm sure cavemen sold clubs. Well, you know, I just saw last night need. on TV, colon cleanse. Yeah. You know how much stuff is backing up in your colon if you don't get that <laughs> colon cleanse? You're carrying around about 20 pounds of uh, dead matter in your body. There, there's a, um, a great podcast called Skeptoid Brother where a guy, he's a skeptic and he goes through all those things. And uh, he does the whole thing on these uh, colonic cleaners and, and whatnot. And um, uh, it's pre- it kind of ranks right up there with the, uh, the, the oxygen bar. But you, you bring up a good point. And, th- and that is, if, if, if the physicians don't understand the science behind an issue, how do you truly expect a lay jury to understand the science behind a complicated medical case when you present it to them? So what, what you're really describing is why the, the medical legal system is in the pickle it's in, because you can't put science in the, the courtroom. Yeah, it's very difficult. And, you know, if you want everlasting life, you know, take communion and not oxygen from a, from a squirt, uh, squirt piece because it's not going to work. Let's go on to the next letter here. Uh, we've got a letter from, from uh, Ben um, who is, has said, I have a question regarding documentation beyond the medical chart. We've actually spoken to this issue once before, but I think it's, it's important. You know, I must tell you that sometimes when people ask questions that we have covered thoroughly in the past, I guess that they're, they're new, new subscribers. That or, or what we said wasn't terribly lucid. exciting. Lucid. lucid, yes. <laughs> right. But he does ask a question. He says, during my residency, I was always told to write down every detail of a high-risk case and I could remember and keep it filed away somewhere uh, in, a case of, in a file of my own in case of future litigation. I have done this on several occasions. In fact, he may have drawers and drawers piling up. He probably wants to know how, how to now properly dispose uh, of this stuff in a, HIPAA, in a HIPAA correct way. But what he says is, there are typically two reasons I end up doing this. First one is a high-risk case. Uh, he goes on to say, but this, is the, this avoids the late entry problem. Then I don't have to go back into my chart. Uh, ben, we're going to tell you this again. Okay, listen closely this time. Do not keep a separate. Be nice, be nice now. I, I was, I was, I jumped the gun a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. Do not keep a separate record. It's not a good idea. You don't even know all the ugly questions they're going to ask you about a separate record. Let me go through that list since I've watched it. Number one, doctor, you keep a separate record. Do you realize that that's not accessible by the patient? Do you realize that violates HIPAA? So now we've got a HIPAA charge, doctor, as well as your gross, blatant malpractice. Number two, 
if you've got this separate piece of paper hidden somewhere, what's been the chain of of this evidence and the custody of this? Could something have been changed on that? Is it dated? Is it timed? If you put in other other uh, entries, do we know how that happened? So it carries no validity in court. It may remind you, and I promise you they'll ask this question. Doctor, do you have any other materials that are not present today? Now, you have two choices. You can lie, which impales your immortal soul, Or you can say, yes, I've kept a record. His next question is, do you keep a record on all cases? No, just those I think I'm going to be sued on. So, doctor, you knew in advance you'd malpracticed on this patient. Do you want to go through this, Ben? Don't do it. Do not keep a separate record. If you want to add something to the file, do an addendum report. But it should be available to plaintiffs, to the patient, to whoever wants that record. Uh, Now, Ben, listen carefully. You know, we don't want to ever talk about this issue again. If you've got a a drawer someplace with these records, um, give me a a personal phone call and we'll talk about destruction. Because this could be awful. What about uh, adding something to the chart after the attorney asks for the records? So now that there's the record they get, and then you say, oh, I knew this was coming. Uh, I'm going to go add some different stuff I didn't put on the chart, which I, I think you really should have done, you know, anytime you remember something, do it on the chart when you remember it before right. you get the letter from the attorney. But now you go into the electronic record, say, and you now add more information. The attorney then says, now, somewhere along the line, that information has got to come across the attorney. Now you have two separate copies of a, of a chart. How do you go about adding additional information that you got after the case left or whatever? You want to add some, some additional information there. You didn't think for, but the, the record's already been requested by uh, an attorney. And I've heard that this is a technique, which is request the record, then come back and request it again to see if anything's been changed. Absolutely. In fact, <clears throat> getting multiple copies of the record, for example, they'll get the copy that was sent to radiology the copy that was sent to billing, and then the official copy. God help you if there's a difference between those copies. Well, even if you date and time it? No. If you date and time, and he, this is what usually happens. You arrive at the emergency department 8 o'clock in the morning. Someone looks at you and says those words you never want to hear. Doctor, do you remember the child you saw last yeah. night? Okay. Now is the time if you're going to add to that chart, you add to it and you date it and time it, 8 o'clock in the morning, I was informed of this. This is my further remembrance of the case. Now, let's say it's six months down the road, and the hospital gets a letter. They, the, uh, all he can request, he can't request to talk to you first. All he can, the plaintiff can, can request is a copy of the chart. You're informed that a copy has been sent to plaintiff's attorney. Now you decide to talk. This is the first thing you do in the dictation say, I am adding to this chart at this date and this time. You will not only add this to the chart, but a copy will be sent to the, requested, the requesting plaintiff's attorney. So you eliminate that fraud, that potential fraud charge right off the top. Always admit to it. it you know, it's kind of like, 
doing stuff with your wife. Just tell the truth now, because when she finds out later, it's going to be a bitch. Well, I don't think we've ever talked about addendums to the record that were made months after the patient was seen. Yep. That stuff would be the same stuff that would come out in testimony. So I think my my own two cents is... Yeah, the writing of a, an addendum the next day or something like that is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Uh, the writing of an addendum after you've been named in a suit is a self-serving thing to do, which would have come out in testimony anyway. It's, it's going to come out in testimony anyway, but the point is, uh, the last thing you want is for them to find out later that there was an addition to the record which wasn't sent to them, which they did not have available to them, so, and I've only had this particular situation you talk about happen twice. Most everything is the next day edition mm-hmm, right. kind of stuff. This thing is very rare, but in both cases, it did not go well. Well, I, I think that the only thing is what you're going to add is only going to be the same stuff that they're going to say, do you remember anything different? Or they're going to ask you questions and you're going to say, well, you didn't write that on the chart. It's like, well... You know, you're asking me to remember back. I didn't document that because I'm a terrible documenter. Um, you know, I, I, it was, I'm always too busy. I don't have time to document all my thought processes. But, you know, this is, you know, what it is. So the same information comes out regardless. So I don't, I don't know that there's an advantage to writing it then. But unless, you know, the only other thing I, I will say is occasionally I have seen the hospital's risk management office come to somebody and say, we got a request for a chart. Um, you know, we're, we're opening our file on it. You know, we want to ask you to write a, um, your ind- independent recollection of what happened that day aside from what's on the chart. Or just tell us exactly what's on the chart is, is just what I, I thought. If the hospital requests that, it, it is mandatory that they send your personal reflections to the plaintiff because you really are hiding information which the the jury has a right to know at the time of trial and and you would be in big trouble more than that it looks bad to 12 people that you've got a separate record which wasn't available to plaintiff it doesn't look good but what if this is the risk management asking you under um uh your your period Privilege, yeah, peer privilege with the you know the, the the hospital's attorney type of thing. The point is, risk management is a part of the hospital, uh, and when they when they write in for your records on this case, they want the records on this case. That patient has signed a release, which allows all those records maintained by the hospital to be sent. Just I see, I think it's a game. Where the downside is so big and the upside is so small, don't do it. But, but once risk management opens it. that file, isn't that privileged uh, communication between you and the, your attorney? The advice that you two talk about, the protective aspects of, of, of discussion of the case are, but if there's written materials which are related to the patient, no, that's not protected. That's information on that patient. Now, discussions between you and your attorney are definitely protected. So if he has a conversation with you and writes down his remembrances, you know, for his files, that's fine. As long as it's not going to be used as an official part of a record and used for your defense. 
If you've got information, you know, new information, get it into the chart because how else are you going to make it part of the case? I don't want to drag this out, but uh, let's take a little extension of this. And what are your, what's your thoughts about writing things in the chart that may make it clear that the place was melting down? You just got the, a hemophiliac bus accident in. Right. And that's why you may appear or may have been neglectful of this one patient now who has a bad outcome. Yep. Do, you, do you think it's appropriate to write in the chart that um, those things have uh, affected the care that you're providing? I think it's perfectly reasonable to note on the chart um, under under a disaster situation or overload situation, I had a few of those in my career when the you know the hemophilia camp bus you know hit the. Uh, do you, do you put down the specifics or you just write some <clears throat> kind of uh, cryptic? Uh, uh, de- you know, department um, uh, overwhelmed at this time. I had seven kids that I had to look at, four of whom were going to go to the operating room. I was the only doctor. You know what? I want to be able at some point in time to recreate that in front of a jury. You see, 12 people sitting in a, in a room on a lazy afternoon with nothing better to do than listen to this case doesn't understand what it was like that night. And what that alerts them to do is to go back and pull the log to actually show what the volume was in a short period of time. See, I, I think we live in a sea of disaster occasionally. Now, there's a lot of departments which run pretty smoothly, but there are others which, you know, twice a week, you ain't going to get seen in 10 minutes. You're not going to have your, your TPA going in, in, in 20 minutes, even if you believe in TPA. And, and we ought to be able to somehow note that on the chart. All that is is an honest descriptor of the situation. But what I've done is... is um and everybody's in, been in this situation. You have a back pain in the hallway, fully dressed. And, you know, you, I write on the chart, unable, you know, department too crowded at this time to be able to get patient into a room and fully undressed. Do not believe this has impeded my exam and then put my exam down. Because, you know, everyone's going to say, my God, you didn't undress the person. You should have them completely undressed. I can evaluate the back. Everybody listening to this tape has, has looked at backs in the hallway. Uh, and I just make a note that I could not get them into a room to do that. Now, you can't say I couldn't get the guy with the black tarry stool into a room to do a rectal exam. That's not going to fly. You've got to be able to say, I think I, w- I did a good enough exam in the hallway. But I, when I have those kind of cases, you know, I will, I, I will document that. I don't do it if I'm suturing a laceration in the hallway. Yeah, and the, pro- and the problem is when we get into this idea that there's going to be is standard of care the standard care. And certainly in a lot of departments, those things which we'd usually teach in a medical school, things like that, that's not actually what's happening. Rick, you were at, you were at uh, University of Southern California at L.A. County. Was it always perfect? Did it always flow smoothly? Perfect. Perfect. You ever see the waiting room there? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's an embarrassment. They try to do their best, but um, uh, their throughput times uh, are not comparable to what would be expected of a community hospital where you're actually seeking out patients. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, it might be worth it to drive the 30 minutes to uh, Pasadena. I don't have it. any idea why people wait in protracted times in these county hospitals when the, the uh, Beverly Hills Hospital has got to take them to. 
Yeah, I don't. Yeah, right. I never got it, but maybe the word isn't out that things you can are go bad in Beverly. Things are bad in Beverly Hills too. In the waiting room, they're serving domestic Beaujolais, so things are not like they used to be. All right, we're. I've got a here? case. Oh, I've listen. I've got a case, and you guys are going to love this. It's a New Jersey case. He's going to do a case. Yeah. Rick, Al, let's do a case. Um, you know. I, I, I get all the, and I'm here at the scientific assembly, people grab me and shake me and say, I can't sleep at night after I re- listen to the damn uh, thing because of all the bad stuff. Well, if you weren't sleeping before, hang on, Jack. Um, I've got a failure to order. This is a New Jersey case. Hey, my hometown. No, your, your home probably state. Probably Morristown, by the way. It might be his case. That's, probably my case. That's not your hospital, yeah, is no, it? It's not well, no, hospital. it's not your hospital. And I'm not saying the name of the case, because I also had that complaint here. Now, these are all matter concluded of cases. Record, They're a matter of public record, but, but they said, but, you know what? You don't have to say it on, right. the, on the tape. It adds nothing. It adds nothing. Exactly right. And, you know, some of these guys. And they misspelled my name. So <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, exactly. They don't like it. So here's the problem. A 54-year-old man comes into an emergency department, which will remain nameless. Uh, and this is August 2005. He says he's having some headache and double vision. Mm. Hold on. Oh, hold on, crazy man. Uh the emergency physician uh, does some sort of uh, less than adequate neurological exam. He did not, I guess, go to the Henry uh, talk on double vision. Sent him over for a CT scan. CT scan comes back as negative. So he treats his headache, sends him home. Now, wait a minute. This is a guy who has a positive finding a disconjugate gaze, and a headache. Do we have a disease here, yes or no, gentlemen? Well, I, I think the first thing is you've got to document, does he have double vision? And a lot of people will call it double vision, and when you really go through everything, cover your left eye, do you see, I see one of you. Cover your right eye, do you see one of me? How many of you see me see both eyes, I see one of you? Is it that your vision, you're seeing double vision, or is it blurry? Oh, it's blurry. Different, different question, right. but uh, very few people know how to articulate this on the chart. Okay. It's done with a six-point uh, uh, red glass test, and with that test, you can tell which nerve it is, you know, and is it partial, is it full? All those things are done before you ever order a damn test, and then you get the correct test. Well, here's the problem. So he comes back the next day. I'm worse. They admit him to the hospital. Now they've ordered a, uh, an MRI, which maybe was the test they order, should have ordered the first day. When you think about it, you're not looking in, on this, on this uh, study for a, uh, a fracture, a collection of this or that. You're looking for something that's going to be happening in the tissue at the level of the cranial nerves. Yeah, he, th- this guy uh, has, a, has a tumor, a pituitary tumor which is pushing on the nerve, and by the time they operate on it, he's now blind in, uh, in one eye. Uh, hold on there, Chief. Yes. What, what tumor grows so fast that in 24 hours it, it It's the edema you? around the tumor. And we know that he was getting compression of the vasculature to supply the tumor. And what happened was 
it went ahead and finished compressing the blood supply such that the nerve died, the optic nerve died. And so now uh, there's a lawsuit, emergency physicians involved, and the plaintiff had the original CT scan reviewed by a radiology expert who says, you know, I think on the original CT scan, I can see that tumor. Are, are we allowed to curse on this? In uh, hi- well, hindsight? Oh, oh, wait a yeah, second. 2020 hindsight. Got to stop this now. I told you you weren't going to like it. No, no, but I mean, did, I think a retrospective read of a CAT scan knowing the diagnosis is the same as changing your chart when you know that something bad happened to somebody. Doctor, you're thinking like a doctor. You've got to remember when this goes to court, the fact that it's retrospective is obvious. If you've asked an expert to look at a film, what's, the, what's your supposition? It's abnormal. The, real, the only way to do that is to give this expert 50 CAT scans and say, read them. But with, they did that with the, what was that very high-profile case in? Yes, yeah, so it was it, in the abstracts, of course. Yeah, yeah. In, in New York, where they, 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 they actually took the film that the expert read as abnormal and slipped it into his normal and, daily readings. Yeah. Uh, they, the, the, yeah. They gave it also to a bunch of other radiologists. Right. And this critical... Who missed it. This right. critical miss was missed by most of the radiologists. Gentlemen, I'm not saying how the system should work. I'm saying how it did work. Okay. So this is the case. Retros- the retrospective review says I can see that the. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So now what we have is a pissing contest between the emergency docs who are being nailed to the wall on this case and the radiologists. And then the radiologists saying, well, they should have been more specific about what they wanted us to look for, kind of thing. The emergency doc saying, if only he'd given me this diagnosis day one, I wouldn't be in this case kind of thing. All I can tell you is this. The jury looked at this, and this is a $2.5 million jury verdict. This isn't a settlement. Right. This is a jury verdict, state of New Jersey. Now, we can be unhappy about things, but tell me where this went wrong, guys. Let let me just back up a minute. If, If I'm plaintiff's attorney, is it to my benefit to muddy the water? Because if, if, you, if, if I'm the defense team and I do it right, it's, you can't have both the radiologist and the emergency physician wrong. One or the other of them has got to be. So, oh, oh contraire, good sir. The jury can decide I, anything I, they want, the, the and jury they can decide did. What they want. But if I'm plaintiff's, ex, a plaintiff's attorney, I'm thinking I got a clean kill on the ER doc. Um, why drag the radiologist into it? For money. But, no, but... but, but now you're now the jury's now you've got to convince the jury that not only did the, the it's either the emergency physician ordered the right test and the radiologist read it wrong, or the emergency physician ordered the wrong test and didn't give the radiologist the right information. You you don't have the emergency physician ordering the wrong test and the radiologist missing it. The problem with you, Al, is you're a scientist. You think like a scientist. You. That is not the way they present these cases to juries. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, not only did the emergency doctor have a chance to pick this up, just based on the history and physical, but the radiologist had a chance to pick it up, and he missed it. And if the emergency physician had asked for the correct test, 
probably they both would have picked this thing up. How can we let two groups of such negligent people practice in 2000 or 2005? And if I'm the defense, I go, all right, let's look at this. I've got a very well-qualified emergency physician practicing state-of-the-art emergency care and this very well-qualified radiologist practicing state-of-the-art and both of these people miss this. Maybe it's that this is just a disease that no one was going to pick up at this point in time. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, and, and I know this happened, let's read from this textbook. Here is the standard exam for double vision, Bi- binocular double vision. Show us on this exam where they went through the six cardinal gazes of vision. Show us where they did a three-stage red glass test. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Nobody uses red glass. Do you have a red glass in your department? We have like some, some shot glasses the nurses brought back from a bar that are red. There's no red glasses. No, so you have to be careful here. This may be the idealized exam, but when you look at what... Uh, Why a red glass, by the way? Well, it doesn't matter. whether it's, You just have to have two different colors because but, all you do is when you move the light in a dark room, as you move in the cardinal positions of gaze, in the, in the, in the position of maximal deficit they will see both a red and a, a colored and a non-colored light. As you move them back, let's say a sixth nerve is involved, you move them back to where both eyes are, are, are convergent, one light, pink. You move them to the maximum uh, separation, and you have a white and a red one. It's really quite simple, costs no money. It is not... There is in my career, has I've difficult. never seen it done. Do not imply in any way that this is the standard of care. Do not imply that. Um, yeah, I think you, you know you're probably right. Is there it, some? It's usually more. It's usually more along the lines of, you know, looking at me, wait, looking wait at my second. finger. Do you see one or two? Let's go over here. One or two. Over here. One or wait, two. Wait, wait. Excuse me. Yes. Is there something wrong with the science I'm stating? No, absolutely but, not. Yeah. And by the way, is it high tech? We're not, not. We're not no. arguing about whether it's good science or whether it works or not. I'm just saying it's not done in emergency departments. But Doctors in emergency departments do not use pneumatic otoscopy, even though they should. I, right. I, did pneumo- I did pneumatic otoscopy on damn near every kid I saw. Well, you also had the red and green lights. And yes. They, yes. they were some kind of weird doctor kind of thing here. Hey, yeah. listen, uh, we, got a, we got a guest coming in here. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is uh, Dr. Jim Roberts. Uh, everybody knows Jim. EM News columns, and he just finished, I think, and recovered from writing the 15th edition of Roberts and Hedges, and he survived. Okay, Listen. just so we don't have to go with through our uh, through our with our listeners uh, the the facts of the case again. I would only yeah, let's point just finish out this one up because I'm sick of it already. Yeah, well, I know you're sick of it, Rick. <laughs> I know the chart sucks. Yeah, the chart hey, sucks. I'm going to give you uh, this headphone, uh, Jim, when we're done this one. All right. The bottom line, however, is $2.5 million, emergency doc involved, radiologist involved, and they turned on each other, and they read right out of textbooks about what do you do with this kind of double vision. Is it usually anatomic? Yes or no. Do they have a disease? Yes or no. And the jury said, yeah, they had a disease, and you guys didn't go at it the right way. Now, whether we like this or don't like this, I, I'm reading you the results. Well, you know, the fundamental question here is, 
the, yeah, the, the, there may be some issues regarding the uh, quality of the exam, but it, the indications of doing a CAT scan um, for headache patients are basically, you know, uh, a catastrophic bleed or something like that, or a warning leak. But, you know, even some of the literature we've reviewed says CT uh, and MRI are very similar for picking up uh, small bleeds. And the fact of the matter is you're not going to pick up the brain tumors on most of the CTs. And so we should be transitioning from doing uh, CTs on every soul who has something wrong with their head to being more selective about who gets an MRI. It's exactly. the same thing about spinal injuries. You can, you can CT them all you want. It's not Nobody's right doing study. that anymore, Rick. See, the CT for your spinal cord is gone. I think as a screening test, you'll see a lot of people do it. I don't think they should be screening with that test. Why? Well, this, is for, this is for fractures. It's not for yeah. cord injuries. But anyway, I think the thrust of this one is, uh, and the take-home message is, you've got to be aware of what the test's capabilities are. And in this case, this, should, this is an MRI. And if it couldn't be done stat, it could have said, okay, I think we'll order it in the morning or we'll send you over to some other place kind of thing. Because it's really unusual that this person deteriorated as quickly as they did. And I, I think did, that's yeah. the key there. And by the way, it was also noted that uh, there was no examination of the fundi of the eye. Did he have yeah. papilledema or a decrease well, that, in, in venous pulsation? Yeah, that's what I was, was going to ask. That's a bad one. Yeah. That's a bad one. That's, yeah, this is a bad That's, that's kind of like the uh, the canary in the coal mine indicator. You didn't it, even it, look in the back of the eye with that little thing. Everybody, every layman knows that you're supposed to look in the eye. No. Yep. All right, hold on here a minute. We want to do a little change uh, of our microphones and stuff and uh, bring in Jim. Now, joining us in the, in the cases, um, you know, I don't know what to say about Jim Roberts. I'm just one of his many fans. Brilliant pieces every month in a uh, throwaway we won't mention. Uh, a superb uh, speaker, scientist. Uh, we, we are all in his debt, and Al and I. Al, are you and I worthy of having him here? I, I've, I've often told um, people who say to me, I heard that you know Jim Roberts, and I would say to them, he is no no questions asked, the smartest physician I have ever met. Yeah, I think I'd agree yep. on that. So he will have, uh, an- he he'll have the correct answers to the all these cases. Yeah. Uh, you're too kind. Much yeah, too yeah, kind. Uh, uh, <laughs> but you notice he doesn't argue with that. No, you know, no exactly. But, but he, he really can't fish worth nothing. Yeah. I've, I've been on trips with him. He comes back with nothing. All right. Although I was uh, in a, um, a malpractice trial where some guy named Greg Henry uh, gave in his deposition. He was the best expert witness in the country. <laughs> <laughs> to which I told the lawyer, no. No, yeah. I, I am. I am. Exactly yeah. right. Good thing David Talon wasn't there, too, because it would have been a mess. Okay. Um, now, let's look at another case. Failure to inform man of nodule on lung in chest X-ray. When are these things going to stop? Uh, this case is a uh, District of Columbia case. It was settled out of, out of uh, it did not go all the way to a jury verdict. And here's the standard story. Gentleman in the emergency department with a chest X-ray for something not related to cancer. Um, you know, he'd had a, a mild uh, runny nose, cough, that sort of thing. Got a chest X-ray. Is there a reading of suspicion on that on that piece of paper that the radiologist produced? Yes, there is. Now, he had a primary care doctor that went back to him. It also somehow appeared in the emergency department. The, but we do get to see him back in about eight months uh, with multiple metastases uh, and, and uh, going to die very shortly. Now, the next question was, 
were there actually lesions on both sides of the chest on the first visit? The answer is two radiologists think there are lesions on both sides of the chest. Does that make a difference? Well, it certainly makes a difference in life expectancy. And so this case came down to a fight. Who's responsible for the film? Who's responsible for notifying the patient? It eventually came down to, was he going to die anyway in a short period of time? And as you all know, being on both sides of the chest is not a good thing for long, longevity. Uh, but, and so they settled up at, at $810,000, which in the District of Columbia is probably not a bad settlement. Because it's a tough area to try cases. Yeah, but I, I think you never want your defense to be, it wouldn't have made any difference anyway. Well, it that, makes a difference to the family and to the patient. You can, yeah. You can be sure of that. And yeah, I'm sure yeah. some expert will say that had he had chemotherapy, he lived three or four years longer. Right. But I, I think, yeah, you, you never want your, 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 your defense to hang on the fact that, yeah, we screwed up, but it, it, it didn't matter anyway. I think this, this goes to really... Um, an operational issue in your emergency department. Do you have a mechanism to track down incidental findings on x-rays? And I think the, the overwhelmingly, at our place, they made the decision, the, the belt and suspenders decision, which is radiologists, whenever they see a nodule, calls the emergency department. And there's a mechanism that then kicks in in the emergency department. It's reported to one of the nurse practitioners who logs it and then starts the, the um, documentation of I tried to call the patient, I tried to call him again, we sent a letter, registered letter, that type of thing. Yeah. But it's, it's a huge problem because we get, you know, 50, 60 chest x-rays a day, and they, you, you, depending on who's reading the x-ray, they find a nodule in 10% of them. That's a lot of callbacks. I understand that. But as we're looking at the case and we're passing out information to our listeners What's the take-home message here? That is, uh, and, and you realize, there are two contributors. The family doc's office got a report of this thing. And these days, they're sent such that there's a, uh, they know what time that thing arrived at the office. There's no question that both the emergency department and this doctor's office were informed. Are they both wrong here, Jim? Uh, well, not, first of all, nodules are easy to miss. Uh, they're one of our biggest callbacks, and one wonders what the radiologist said on his on his uh, on his reading. Um, our radiologists have taken the tact that they will uh, write on their report. Uh, I called the emergency room, Dr. Roberts, at 10 a.m. and told him of this issue. Uh, I think the public thinks that whoever ordered the X-ray should be responsible for if there's a bad outcome, it's like a blood culture. If you draw a blood culture in the ER. You can't expect that the general practitioner's office is going to get a call and do something about it. Right. They, they get tons of these a day. They probably didn't even look at it. Now, if the doc said, um, see your doctor in one day for follow-up uh, of all your tests and x-rays, that might have been a little mitigating circumstance. But I, I think the ER is responsible, and I agree with Al. You have to have an airtight mechanism uh, to, so these things don't th fall through the cracks. Administrators are loath to give you a dollar you know, to save $10 million lawsuit. You know, for a clerk or, or RN or, or a quality assurance person. This can't be the doctor who's on duty getting the call in the middle of you know, six or seven patients Absolutely. and him writing it on his shirt and putting it somewhere and forgetting about it. It has to be called uh, 
yeah. uh, to someone who can actually do something about it. Yeah, I agree with Jim a thousand percent on this, and that is, you know, there's nothing worse than you're in the middle of mayhem, and they say radiology's on the phone. You pick it up, and they go, uh, "Can you look at a chart on a guy by the name of Gonzalez?" And you go, uh, "Okay, which Gonzalez?" And you look at him, he has a small nodule, and you go, oh, "Okay, fine," and then. You, you hang up the phone, you run and finish what you were doing, you go back and you, you know, okay, let me pull up Gonzalez, and there's 15 of them that were seen yesterday, and which one is, is the one they're talking about. You, absolutely, you have to have a mechanism that runs independent of the clinicians taking care. And ours kicks over to, um, we have nurse practitioners who do H&Ps for admitted patients in the, office, in the ER type of thing. The other thing I will tell you, Jim, that I've seen is, if you get that, that really um, verbose radiologist who describes 15 different things on the, on the x-ray. And, you know, you're looking for, well, did they have a pneumonia or not? And you, it's not there. And they start in with, there, there's, you know, osteop- osteopenia of the third thoracic vertebrae. Yeah, multiple stuff. myeloma right there, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, and you're, right. You're, you're looking, and there's so much there. You just scan. It's like, okay, this is fine. And buried in the middle of that is, oh, and there is a one centimeter nodule that requires a CAT scan or whatever. There's usually a summary, though, a summary line. Yeah. And and it Hopefully. was it was in this case in the summary line. Yeah, this is uh, so common. I mean, I've seen this case ten times. Yeah, you and I both. A- yeah. And what happens is patients die from lung cancer, no matter what happens. Uh, but you 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 can't miss this. You you can't let it fall through the cracks. And I'm totally amazed that uh, that the hospitals don't figure this out. One lawsuit will take you twenty years worth of a, of paying a nurse's salary to do this. We have a discrepancy log on our computer. Uh, x-rays where the doctor supposedly writes his interpretation. So it's a normal chest x-ray. And if there's anything else on there, like a wide mediastinum or adenopathy, which are fairly common, then the radiologist is supposed to, by our agreement, call our quality assurance nurse. Now, they don't do that all the time. You know, the human, human nature doesn't allow people to, to do that. New radiologists come on, they go to lunch, they forget about it. Uh, but it is, it's a bread and butter issue that has to be done, and it can't be done by the ER doc. And I don't understand why people don't get it. All right. Well, I'm sitting with uh, three people who do a lot of medical legal work. Uh, Jim, what are you seeing uh, as trends in medical legal cases at this time? Anything new, anything hot, or are we just dealing with the same bread and butter stuff? Well, the more I do this, the more I realize things don't change. They're always the top five or ten cases you know, thoracic, thoracic dissections are missed, strokes are missed when someone's weak and dizzy and uh, someone does a crappy exam, uh, pulmonary embolism, hard to diagnose, that's why we do so many CAT scans, um, missed appendicitis, you know, you know kids, uh, 80% of kids with appendicitis uh, are operated on when they're perforated, which means that I don't think 80% of the doctors are incompetent, it's just a, it's a tough diagnosis. Um, so relatively same issues. Uh, I do a lot of toxicology cases. Um, they're all a little bit unique, uh, and um, they're, they're rarely uh, something that you can sort of outline to say what's going on. But uh, I am amazed that, like this nodule in the lung, very, very similar problems. That's why you know, anybody that leaves the ER with abdominal pain has to have on there that you knew there's such an organ as the appendix, and you look for it, and uh, you told the patient that, uh, you know, in eight hours, if you're not perfectly normal, you must come back to the emergency room or see your doctor, you know, not see your doctor as follow-up. This is so bread-and-butter 
uh, easy to fix, to, to, to insulate yourself, doctors just don't get it. Maybe yeah. when they get sued, they get it, but they don't get the concept that the chart can save you nine out of ten times from, from bad medicine, just, yeah. to, just what you say on the discharge. Well, uh, you and I all know that uh, blocking and tackling is still important. And it's the blocking and tackling kinds of stuff. It's not the it's not the sixty yard pass down the field that wins. It's it's all the the simple stuff, and this is the simple stuff. Maybe I got a little different case for you, gentlemen. Let me just add one other thing. Yeah. Now thinking about it, there are there there seems to be actually in toxicology a trend on uh, opiate related deaths. Yeah. Uh, from as simple as uh, giving too much Dilaudid to an old guy in the ER, which I am amazed the number of cases I see where people come in and they give them two milligrams of Dilaudid. You know, and then another two. I mean, Dilaudid's a powerful drug. And a 75-year-old guy, you know, probably can't take six milligrams of Dilaudid over four or five hours. Some people are very sensitive to it. Uh, Methadone, a lot of the GPs are prescribing methadone. Uh, I see methadone cases, methadone known, methadone overdoses coming into the ER. They watch them for three or four hours. And if they don't have any symptoms, they send them home. The doctors don't know anything about the pharmacology of methadone. Uh, Percocet prescriptions, um, you shouldn't have given that person Percocet or... Um, you left the alcoholic go when he's still at a blood alcohol level, or the uh, you know, the people who elope and you don't send the cops out to get them. So, um, particularly opioids, everybody knows that every, everyone wants opioids and they're easy to get. And the particularly oral opioids, they're very tricky. You can't send home an oral opioid overdose. Uh, after a couple hours of observation, they just don't have symptoms. And, and methadone is, is the classic one. All right. Uh, here's a case for you. Uh, and I would agree with you, Jim. I'm seeing more and more of those uh, uh, narcotic overdose cases as well. But it, it's coming almost to the point of ridiculousness that they say, you, doctor, should have, you should have known that that's the kind of person who would have gone home and taken all those drugs. And, of course, they had pill bottles from eight other people sitting at home, and they kind of downed them all. Well, you like the good riddance policy for the heroin addicts. You know, yeah, they're, yeah. they're paying the neck. You want to get them out of there. The, the best thing you want to hear is a nurse comes, hey, that heroin addict who woke up with Narcan, he's okay after an hour. He wants to go home. You say, thank God. He's asking for something to eat. He wants his, he's in pain. You know, and you get rid of him. You know, the good riddance. And that, that doesn't serve anybody. All right. Here's a, here's a case that may be a little different. EMTs and an emergency doctor involved. Um, State of Massachusetts, and again, we're not naming anybody here because I've gotten some feedback on that. EMTs determined premature baby. Uh, They determined this baby when they got to the house is non-viable. They did that without checking the heartbeat. Baby determined to be alive upon arrival at the hospital. Uh, Death uh, within two months of... uh, in the hospital, so they ran up a huge bill. And um, tell me, do you think? And the emer- there is an emergency doctor who is the uh, medical advisor of the system. The EM, the EMS system has a medical advisor. The EMTs get sued, and the system gets sued. You know, a policy on this sort of thing, and this guy signs off on the policies. What do you think? What do you think happened here, Al? Uh, what happened to the suit? Yeah. I think the plaintiff wins the suit. You think so, Jim? Yeah. Uh, they, um, I don't know. I think they probably won, but at least they don't don't have a child who is, uh, you know, 20 to 30 years in a nursing home right. with all sorts of medical problems. I mean, uh, those are the ones that, uh, you know, sort of uh, probably ought to let go at some point. Um, but, but that's that's hard for the, you know, for the family. Well, it's, let, it's, let me just their tell child you. Their child died. Their child died. 
This a million buck decision. That's a little strange. Again, I I know you don't like I, to I hear it. I understand, but I'm Al, just saying. You think it's high or low? I think it's low. Now, I think that's high only because I am sure that if, if this kid was so premature that they didn't even look for the heartbeat and those kind of things, it somebody's going to do the scale and it's probably a 24 weeker or something like that. And the experts are going to say wouldn't have survived anyway. Oh, well, let, let me do a short-term analysis here. I think this is a sociologic case. I think they re- received money because of the mental anguish and pain of being told your child's dead, then they're alive. And, of course, being dead on the way in, nothing was done for the child. And I think that so of- offends the sensibilities of the jury any woman on that jury is going to feel for that exactly. family. Exactly. And who well, knows, maybe she's been trying for 10 years to get pregnant. Uh, maybe another, their child has Down syndrome, and this would have been... I, I was in one case where they sued because of a death of a child who could have grown up to be the caretaker of their Down syndrome child, and they won money for that, yeah. if you can believe that. But, yeah. but I think that what I find a little unusual is it's very difficult to win cases against EMTs. Um, with the whole 9-11 uh, aura and everything else, it is difficult, and... It, I don't know the details. Are they EMTPs, EMT basic? But you know th- that whole plays into it as well. Well, if if I look over my uh, over the last twenty, thirty years of my cases, I've probably done two, three dozen EMT cases, uh, and that's a lot less than doctors' uh, mm-hmm. cases that I've done. You're right; it's hard, but it's not impossible. And what they claimed in this case is this wasn't standard negligence; this was gross negligence okay not to have taken the pulse of the child i mean i mean we don't want to be emt or doctor apologists on this program did they do the wrong thing well here's the question did they try and take it and couldn't so it's an emt basic squad who's got no electronic equipment they listen it's this this you know extremely premature child do they do that and they they can't find a heartbeat and they go okay our protocol says Eyes fuse, kids looks this size, you know, we, we, uh, we listen for a heartbeat, we don't hear one, there's no respiratory motion, we declare them dead. Or did they just not even bother? Exactly. And that's what the claim is in this case. Father is there, mother is there. What did they do? Set the child aside. Did you see a stethoscope come out for the chest? No. Did anybody try and observe the child for this or that? Did they feel for pulses? No, 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 no. And of course, the chart, there is no examination listed on that chart that they've tri- you know, tried to obtain a pulse and couldn't do it. That's not there. Now, I, I, there's no question in my mind that the child may have been pulseless and after birth developed a pulse. All of us have been involved in cases where we thought they were initially dead. And somebody says, oh, by the way, doctor... <laughs> You know, don't you love that? Yep. I mean, it's, it's, it's always tough when we, they say Do you say know that. if this was a volunteer fire EMS or a city-run EMS? I do not have that. Yeah. I do not have that information. I agree with Al. It's hard to win against the, the volunteer firemen right. who are your neighbors that come out and help you. Right. You yep. know, and leave their job to pick up you up and take you to the hospital versus the crass uh, city firemen who didn't want to be that anyway. Right. And uh, they're, good, you know, they're pissed off because they're, they have to go overtime and they don't get paid for it. So there may it makes a big difference, I think, and I agree with that on, on who's doing it. I, I think it does as well. I just don't have that information, but uh, it is it is a very interesting uh, it is an interesting case, and and I think that it is still important that when we train EMTs or we talk to EMTs, you do examine and you do write it down. 
I, I think this gets very complicated too because there are cases that let's take it out of the, there and put it into the emergency department setting. There are deliveries that we get, you know, the precipitous deliveries where you're not sure whether it's viable or not, or you're sure it is non-viable, but it's got a, the, 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 the child's got a heartbeat and whatnot, and the, an active decision is made, we're not going to institute resuscitative measures on the child. You know, they're you know, obviously 20 weeks or whatever. Um, and we, we do make that on occasion. It's, it, you, you obviously, you want to do it in conjunction with a neonatologist if you can, but there are, there are times where people say, what are you doing? Um, yeah, you know, and he, well, you see, you watch Entertainment Tonight or the news about right. the the twenty four weeker who right. you know graduates college uh, now with with a yep. uh, with a Phi Beta Kappa. So, you know, I think the public has an unrealistic expectation of what we can do for these newborns. I think that child probably would not have survived uh, anyway. It would have been in the hospital for a couple of weeks, but at least you tried. Yeah. But the public doesn't. Well, I don't the bad they're... part about this case is they might have survived, and as you point out would have been the dependent of the state for the next 20 years. See, yeah. I don't think the worst thing in the world is death. I mean, there's lots of things in between there that we don't want to see, but I think that's hard to try in front of a jury. I think that's a very hard case to make, and, and we need to be aware of it. Okay, we'll try another case. Um, you guys might like this one. Failure to diagnose preeclampsia. During two emergency room visits, blame for a woman developing seizures and delivering a stillborn child. Hmm. Okay, that's done. You're uh, losing that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me give you some numbers here and see what you think. First, the woman comes in with some headaches, some nausea, blood pressure 150 over 108. Not so high, right, Jim? Hmm. For a pregnant woman? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pretty high. Okay, yeah. all right. <laughs> red, red flag high. Yeah. Well, this was this was kind of written off. Second visit, she was one seventy four over uh, one twenty one. Mm. Sent home. <laughs> give, and, give her a little Norvash. She'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A little Norvash. She'll be okay. And uh, uh, funny, the uh, ju- the uh, jury in a very conservative state, uh, which well, we can give the state state of Alabama, where doctors pretty much do pretty well. As a matter of fact. You know, pretty much you have to leave the body in the hallway with a knife and your fingerprints on it. Uh, they came back and gave $650,000 on this one. And all the testimony uh, was pretty much, uh, pretty much straightforward that pregnant woman, blood pressure up, should have checked the urine, should have done a couple of other things. And we're not talking about anything here that requires integral calculus. <laughs> we're talking about calling the OB guy, saying the blood pressure's up, and she's got you know, protein in her urine. How hard can this be, gentlemen? No, this is a this is a classic medical school first first lecture in OB. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This 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 is one of those slam dunkers that uh, I'm sorry, we just uh, uh, the ju- we have to agree with the jury in this case that when they came in with that. And on the second, see, to get one strike, one bite at the apple and, and miss it, okay. But she's back in another day with greater blood pressure. Why you wouldn't pick up the phone and call OB in at that moment in time, I don't understand it. But, but I think that the, the clear, this is clearly exactly what Jim said. This is, this is bread and butter obstetrics, but this is a doctor uh, or whoever was managing them who never understood that. That right. anybody who knows anything about OB would, like Jim, Jim's eyes lit up when you, you gave the, the blood pressure. Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you something else. 
we can't we don't have the time to carry on this discussion but the chart was signed by a doctor the second visit who saw the patient on the first visit on super well and the doc didn't go in to see him yeah, luckily the, PA, didn't, the PA. Luckily, they didn't lose the mother in that one, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Get the mother is, in status, and now the mother's brain damaged. Yep. Yeah, they're fortunate on that one. They're very fortunate. Without getting too deeply into this, uh, uh, gentlemen, let's each pick one risk management point on this case uh, that, that, that just, just blew it out of the water. Just pick one. Jim. Uh, you say that the nurse practitioner PA saw the patient and the doctor did not? Did not. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I think um, with all due respect to the uh, our paraprofessionals, uh, sometimes they don't get it either. Who knows what their training was. But you are responsible for it, and you have to know the competence of your PA or MP. I would suspect that the doctor had worked with that PA or MP before and had some knew that they were not particularly sharp. Okay. Al? I, I think that the, the main error is, whoever the professional was taking care of them. And I think Jim's absolutely right. Ultimately, the doc's responsible. But whoever took care of them didn't recognize the fact that hypertension in pregnancy is not the same as, as hypertension in a non-pregnant person, that your, your cutoffs are much, much lower, you know, in the whole concept of, of preeclampsia. And I think they just were not educated in that area. Yeah. I, I think that's a preeclampsia in those rural, rural uh, small states, though. Uh, I think Alabama's uh, probably more high, more higher eclampsia than... You know, mainline Philadelphia, I would be surprised. It yeah. may be, they as should, a matter of fact. They should know that more often. Yep. Um, all right, gentlemen, uh, we've certainly done some interesting cases. Well, listen, this is Rick Bucata, and uh, this past month we were recording at the ASAP meeting, and at the very end I was so excited to have uh, Al Sacchetti and Jim Roberts uh, with us that I screwed up the recording, and you didn't get wine of the month, and I don't know that I got to thank Al and um, – Jim for participating. I got Greg on the line. We're doing this via Skype. Greg, uh, you want to do a, a little wine of the month again that you did already? <laughs> well, I'm happy to do do this, Ricky. And uh, one of the reasons I'm really happy is that uh, uh, having having gotten back from the national meeting where I took my usual abuse about wine choices, um, I wanted to do just a little bit of education before I give you a great wine. Whether you know it or not, uh, the, the, the people in the world who make probably the best jug and bulk wines is Ernest and Julio Gallo and, and, and those people. And uh, I defy you to find a better wine for three or four bucks than some of those that, that he makes. Having drunk the, tr- the cheap wines in Europe, Australia, North Africa, let me tell you, our cheap wines... We've got the best cheap wine in the world. Uh, but what you don't realize is that uh, Gallo owns lots of things. The Louis Martini uh, brand uh, is now owned by Gallo. Those two families knew each other through four generations. Uh, Gallo bought the family out. And uh, in a taste test in California, the best wines in the world, the best wines in California blinded to the uh, to the judges the winner was Louis Martini which means by association Ernest and Julio Gallo and I would point out that their 2007 Louis Martini Cabernet Sauvignon the the Mont Rosa vineyards uh, that's one of their special vineyards scored like a 96 and this is 
This is by people who are some of the best wine tasters in the world. And a comment was, never has there been a better wine out of California. Hmm. Now, come on, guys. This is Louis Martini, reasonable price. This is where you want to go when you want to serve a great wine for not too much money. This is what I would buy. So there you go, Rick. Thanks, Greg. Um, I'm going to have to actually uh, check it out maybe. Yeah. Maybe. I'm a white guy rather than a red guy. But I, 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 you make it sound so guy. enticing. Rick, you're the whitest guy I've ever <laughs> seen. And you look into the dictionary and you're a white man. They have your picture. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so that's it. Uh, that was the um, November issue of Risk Management Monthly. We look forward to your uh, comments, emails, questions uh, in the upcoming issues. Greg, thanks a lot for uh, helping repair the, uh, the November issue. Take care now. Bye. Bye. Bye.